welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. The idea for today's episode came from last season's listeners poll, and a number of you wanted to hear more about autism and autism spectrum disorder, so here it is. Today, I talk with my patient Anne, who I started seeing earlier this year, but almost didn't make it to see me, ironically due to the interpersonal challenges of having autism spectrum disorder. My assistant Lisa had called me this spring, saying that she was trying to schedule someone named Anne, but she was having a lot of problems with her, and Lisa told me that she didn't seem to be connecting, that she wasn't sure what the problem was, that Anne was really rigid and kind of hard to deal with. So my initial thought was to tell Lisa to tell this new and potentially problematic patient that I was full. But for some reason I had this feeling that maybe I should reach out to Anne directly, so I told Lisa I would call Anne and schedule her myself. And when I spoke with Anne, she was able to open up about her frustration with the scheduling process and the fact that she was in a state of total overwhelm. So then I quickly softened and made sure that she could get in as soon as possible. Like so many diagnoses in psychiatry, autism, which is now called autism spectrum disorder, encompasses a huge range of symptomology and functioning. On one end, people with this diagnosis are typically nonverbal, needing guardians throughout their lives, unable to work, and extremely unlikely to marry or have children. And on the other end of the autistic spectrum, in what used to be called Asperger's or high-functioning autism, we find people like Anne, who can be highly verbal and intelligent, insightful, and may desire and achieve long-term relationships. Autism, or Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD, refers to a broad range of conditions characterized by challenges with social skills, repetitive behaviors, speech, and nonverbal communication. It appears to have a genetic basis, as well as a correlation with older fathers, presumably due to problems with faulty sperm production. Boys are four times as likely to have the diagnosis, as in general the male brain is much more vulnerable to neurodevelopmental problems. Thus, as a formerly married woman with two children and a job, Anne lands on the far end of the high-functioning spectrum. And yet, this by no means suggests that she hasn't suffered terribly with this diagnosis, with being neuroatypical. For everyone in the autistic spectrum struggles mightily with, as Temple Grandin described it, a sense of being a quote-unquote anthropologist on Mars, a deep-seated feeling of being other, of looking around and seeing a species that looks like you and walks and talks like you, but yet seems alien, mysterious, unknowable even. A couple of definitions, clarifications. Anne and I at one point talk about stimming. This refers to compulsive self-stimulation as a way to calm the nervous system. Stimming can at times involve self-harm and can appear very disturbing and frightening to observers. Also, she talks about going through quote-unquote autistic burnout. I see this as a type of nervous breakdown in which the inability to filter or gate out stimuli and stressors can lead people in the autistic spectrum to decompensate into states of catatonia and or psychosis, as Anne did after her second child was born. You were in therapy on and off since age seven. And, and as an adult, you, I guess the therapist before me, you saw for years, but mm-hmm. no one ever picked up on the autism. They did not. And I think it's because 
Well, I can only guess. Maybe because I look normal. Normal. And I really don't want to offend anyone else when I say that, because I think appearing normal, I call this my costume. Because it is a choice just to put on certain clothes or do your hair a certain way, and it's an intentional. So I think just based on my costume, and I think based on the way that I speak, and I think... I am my own special interest at times. So when you walk into a professional setting and all you're doing is talking about you and yourself, uh, it's hard to see executive functioning issues when those aren't center stage. It's hard to see um, sensory challenges when therapy offices are specifically meant to be comfortable for the most part. It's hard to witness stimming when stimming is uh, shameful and it's private. I think there has not been a doubt since I was little that I struggled with depression or anxiety um, or some OCD-like tendencies or some of these things, but none of the other sort of stuff that comes under that umbrella of autism was center stage in my life to the degree that it would have warranted someone else going, aha, um, or stuck out like that. (laughs) I literally with my last therapist that I saw for years and years, I was telling him, I'm going to go and I'm going to go and be assessed. And he would just shake his head and go, okay. Like, so do you, do you think I am? Well, I don't know. Do you think you are? Well, I think so. So that's why I'm going to go get tested. Could we have a conversation about some of these traits that I have and how it might be impacting my life? Yeah, we can. What would you like to talk about? So I never really got zeroed in or honed in or anything on that. But after my first assessment, I went back to that therapist and I said, okay, this very strongly points to autism. Oh, it does. Okay. And I said, could, could we do some testing here? Because I feel like an imposter. I feel like I'm making this up. And he says, uh, well, sure, we can do that. Why don't you bring me these tests? I'm not qualified to diagnose you, but we can do these tests together. And on one side of this sheet of paper, I'm going to have what I would answer for you based on who I know you to be. And then I'll record your answers on the other side. And so we did, I think, the AQ, and the, do they call it the RADS? RADS, RADS, whatever. So we we did that, and he answered for me, and I answered for me, and he kept all of that. And he goes, there's only two points that we could talk about here. So I, I guess you're autistic. <laughs> <laughs> After how many years of seeing him? Seven. Seven, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder, though, um, I'm just thinking back when I met you. So I had the advantage that you told me that right out, um, that you're on the autistic spectrum. But I think there are some features about you, and I think this speaks to why we talk about autistic spectrum or bipolar spectrum or depressive spectrum. It's like it's a huge tent. And I think you've learned, it's interesting to think about how you dress, because I do think you were mentored pretty well. Like you know what to do to quote unquote kind of pass as neurotypical. I, uh, yeah, I just, I really didn't want any more difficulties in my early life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what I most noticed when I met you, there was, there was a rigidity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 
we've seen that in some of our treatment sessions and and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine you you were very clear from the get-go what you needed way things needed to be which yeah i appreciate that i think early on so i i was cross-eyed as a kid and i think to some degree it's easier to have a physical indication that something about you is different so that there is not the problem with people. I think I have an uncanny valley effect on people. I think people see me and expect me to be or perform or act a certain way. And when I'm outside of that, it makes them a little itchy. They don't, they just get a little weird, you know, around me. If you saw me trying to take a college class, I can't explain why it's hard. I can't explain why an 18 or 20 year old person who's not quite as mature as me can, can do it and do it well. And I can't, I, I don't think that you would automatically look at my giant sunglasses and my huge hat and think, oh, that's all due to sensory issues. I, it kind of looks stylish. Like when you, you show up with the so? big hat and the, and the big crazy sunglasses, I think, wow, Anne's got this cool, funky style. But it's really funny to think that actually that's about blocking out it is. sun and light and, and keeping you in a kind of sensory bubble. But it also has kind of a hip look to it. <laughs> with the hat and the big glasses and all that, it really has become a non-negotiable part of my life because these invisible things that I struggle with, if any of those balls drop, then things get harder. So like the hat and the sunglasses, I make sure I have 100% of the time so that again, I'm not making my life any more difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I probably physically, what would be easiest for me is to probably, I would... I'd probably wear boy clothes, boy clothes. It's all about stitching and dye lot. You know, you don't operate clothes with your genitals, but I would probably wear, you know, boy clothes or shave my head or just really get down to allowing this body just to serve me while I'm here rather than costuming the body so that I fit in with this particular day, age, time, and culture. Some of my earliest memories my earliest memory uh, is of being alone and not being cared for and having to solve some problems as a little toddler on my own. I was outside of, from from the get-go, even in my family I was outside of, and then once I started going to school, I started like just realizing that I couldn't figure out how to connect. I always felt... Like there was something about me that was um, different or other or deeper or 
concerned with things that other children really didn't have on their radar at all. I am 43 now, and I have still, I have still not figured out play. Um, as a little kid, I would watch children play house. And I mean, to say I felt outside of, or I, I just, I was never able to do it. And that goes, it extends into many different forms of play, uh, from puzzles to guided games, to spontaneous interaction on the playground with others, to, um, figuring out a way to enter a group in the negative, in the neighborhood just to belong. I, uh, have always struggled with play. Now that being said in my neighborhood, sometimes we would have races where people would just, you know, it was the eighties. <laughs> you use your feet and you go outside and you get in a group and you just run. And so I did enjoy that type of play, but in terms of horses or Barbies or um, jumping rope or, you know, these sort of things. I just have always had difficulty with that. What did you enjoy as a little girl? Um, solitude, quiet, reading. So I would just read and read and read, or I would get on my bike. <laughs> what did I enjoy? <laughs> meeting random people in the neighborhood to talk about dogs. That's what I, mm-hmm. I did enjoy. So I'd go wander around the neighborhood and talk to people about their dogs if I was lucky enough to run into them. So unconventional things, I think, for a child. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you, quote-unquote, liking quietness and isolation, was it more that you actually enjoyed that or that it was a respite from you know, what you've described in your writing is kind of environmental, like noise pollution. You know, one of the mm-hmm. key, if you will, deficits or problems with, with autism is it is an inability to effectively kind of gate or filter out um, sound and light and stimulation. And so people in the autistic spectrum can get easily overwhelmed because they can't gate out what other people can. Don't you develop a a like or a desire for things that do soothe you or an absence of things that assault you. (laughs) So uh, I liked it, but I don't know if it was necessarily something I would have, um, you know, run into my room and chosen with a smile, but it was necessary for that point in my life. And it's still necessary now. Yeah, say more about the experience, especially as, a, as say, a little girl at school or in the cafeteria or on the playground with the noises and the, and the sounds and, you know, the kind of happy chaos of, of hundreds of children. <laughs> I've always been intolerant of children, even when I was one. So being at school, ooh, you know, there's chatter and there's clinking and there's... Um, All sorts of, I really think the noise thing is big for me, as is light. But being in school, I didn't know that I had these issues. All I knew is that if you're a young woman or you're born into um, this costume of a young woman, then there are certain ways that you behave so as not to create issues. 
So I knew I was different, but I didn't know, you know, I just thought, well, that person is sitting still and I'd get in trouble if I didn't sit still. So despite the fact that I really want to move or I'm totally overwhelmed or I'm dysregulated inside that I had to perform in a certain way. So back then, I don't think that the, you know, the lighting at the school was something that I was really on my radar as affecting me in a negative way. Um, and the noises I didn't like, but I also, um, didn't realize that it could contribute to this sense of, uh, unwellness. I don't know what the right word would be, but discomfort. Tell me about stimming. Like, what role did that play for you as a child? And how did you discover that? And what did you do? I, I think it had been automatic. I think it just, I think it just was there from the get go. You know, when I when I look back at it, and I don't, I don't know if it's okay to say this, um, but I think in the early days there was the the trauma piece of it too, or the neglect piece, and so I thought early on before the internet, when I realized what I was doing, I thought I was like injuring myself. And maybe to some degree at that time I was, but I would pick and pick and pick and just touch all of the uh, irregular parts um, on my body. So any type of like cuticle skin or uh, a little, you know, imperfection somewhere. And I think it started that way. But then I started, then I realized that there are certain things that stick out to other people and draw attention. And that goes against my plan of fitting in and not being seen and not creating issues. And so I started to hide it. Um, and so now <laughs> my stimming is hidden so that I still don't create issues for myself. I'd say I look like a pretty average citizen and, and people wouldn't know this about me, but what it looks like is, um, I'll touch, I'll touch my scalp, not in, not generally around other people, but like I'll touch my scalp or move the hair around a little bit. Or I, my favorite one that's most comforting to me, I call hair pruning. Um, I have long hair, like down past what I guess a hairdresser would call bra strap length. And so I love sitting in my car and then having my hair backlit by the sun. And then I can see where the damage is at the bottom. So I can covertly pick off these little pieces that are pre-damaged and uh, comfort myself at the same time, but no one really knows. And then another one, I guess, is um, the sniffing. <laughs> um. And so, you know, they say with stimming, it comes from, well, when you're generally amped up and you have to calm yourself down or you're already soothed and you're just continuing to comfort yourself. So for me, I brought this in. 
It's my little blankie that I've had for like 40 years. And it has a particular scent that is very, very calming for me. Um, and texture too. So I take really good care of it, but I, I will calm myself with the scent of this blanket. I just sniff it. Maybe like somebody would sniff a little lavender satchel or um, appreciates a citrus diffuser or... So this might be a little unconventional for my age, but that's those are my primary stems right now. When did you discover your affinity for animals and oh. and your connection and, hmm. and how did that develop? Uh, I think it was just a given because everybody in my home had somebody else to pair with except for me and I was on my own. My mother had always had these little dogs, like I say little, maybe 15, 20 pounds Shetland sheepdogs. And so we had one outside and I would wander outside and play with this dog. And, uh, it got to the point where the dog and I just sort of understood each other. And I'm not a very talkative person, um, especially with, with animals, you know, they, communicate more in, in body language and in, uh, an exchange of respect and in ways, oh, and with personal space. So in, in all of these kind of low key ways that I, I understood. So I started training the dog to sit and to roll over and to jump and to walk off leash. And, uh, eventually it got to the point where, um, I used all of those skills to teach my dogs to do things that would bring me into contact with other dog people before dogs were fur babies. <laughs> Back in the days in Texas where if you saw someone walking a dog down the street, that was very exciting. And it might be, you know, you'd go a week, a week and a half without seeing another one because dogs weren't really pets the same way. I mean, to some to some people they were, but... So anyway, so I started training. I started doing um, all sorts of dog sports and, and kind of developed my own. As a young girl. Real young. How young? Uh, I'd say I was already walking neighborhood dogs and stuff like that to make a little money on the side by 10 or 11. Um, by 11 or 12, I was hitching rides to a lure coursing to watch sight hounds run probably by 12 or 13 is when it really took off when I had back when it wasn't a, you know, societal problem to say fed by champion breeders on the side of a bag, you know, when champion breeders were still uh, something to be a aspired to. I really wanted to meet some champion breeders. So 
I eventually got not necessarily hired, but retained to show dogs for other people. And then I started hitching rides to an agility field because um, I was young, 12 or 13. I was when agility had first come out. So I was doing lure coursing. I was doing agility. I started doing therapy work. Um, and I would just scrounge and keep... I started working when I was 13 too, but keep my money to buy myself entry fees and then mooch a ride off of whoever from my club or sphere of influence happened to be going that way. I had a little hammock, so at some of these venues, uh, I was so poor (laughs) that when everybody would leave, I would hang my hammock in a horse stall and have my little dog, you know, whichever dog I had at the time, so I'd sleep in a horse stall with my dog. did you start to develop the, the skills and, and interests, if you will, in starting to connect with people? Because as a kid, you spend so mm-hmm. much time alone with dogs, training dogs, learning about dogs, going to dog shows. Um, but you, you eventually married and you have children now. And how did that evolve that you, again, started to turn towards your fellow species and mm-hmm. start to learn how to connect and... Yeah, can you tell me about that process? I'm not sure that I do know how yet. I think my strategy now, I do things manually. I have to think about what's going to happen, and then I put it into, it's like a series of choices. And I think what helped me, um, well, I did always want to connect with people. I didn't know how. I had one friend at 13 that um, is a friend that I have now. And so I think a lot of the um, learning that I did was watching her, maybe mimicking her, maybe allowing her as a teenager to, to influence me in certain ways. And I don't mean negatively, but in terms of, well, why don't you wear this? This would look cute on you. Or we could do our hair this way, or there's this concert coming up. And so in that way, I was almost like a little duckling. Mm, Like she Um, mentored you. Yes. She had to teach me (laughs) that, that, um, that butts were attractive. (laughs) Really? (laughs) She, she's like, Anne, you know, that is a fine. mm." And, uh, and I'm like, Somebody literally poops out of that thing. I'm not sure how that is sexual at all or you like, but so I learned a lot by kind of following her around. And then as you get older, I mean, I'm not, you can see what other populations of people are doing. And then as an autistic person, many of us will pick certain pieces of that that feel palatable um, to us and then take that on as a coping skill. Um, I will perform that act. Now, 
The complication with me is I'm not really a very good faker. And I don't retain other people's way of being in a, in, in a, in a way that, that I can put on and that appears seamless. So my strategy now that I am not 13 and I can't follow my friend around like a duckling, my strategy, um, I think morphed into my twenties into a fake it until you make it. I tried that. And I do have some friends left from my fake it till you make it attempt. I didn't make it because the faking didn't come naturally. Um, but then after that, and now, since I've discovered more about myself, my strategy is be as close to who you are as you can so that who I am acts as a natural filter for who comes into my life. And they either like me or they don't take it or leave it. And that strategy has had some heartbreak because there's some people that I'd love to be in my life, but that don't have a tolerance for me in my more raw form or original form. But it has also yielded some of my better friends. Mm -hmm. So now I don't just have one. Now I have a few. Yeah. I just had this image of you being a taco truck that only serves one kind of unusual taco why most would people... you i would literally have been thinking about that <laughs> lately i was like remember ray Kroc? like when mm. he, when he was doing the mcdonald's thing and they had like five or six menu items i'm like that's what i would do yeah. like, like <laughs> simplify it down i know like you've learned that rather than be like a lot of people can adapt you know can make all sorts of tacos from the taco truck of themselves like you only serve one very unusual kind of taco that is not most people's thing, but there is a small percentage of people who say, this is kind of cool. And they I've would never, never seen these ingredients, but I'm in. And the people that do, and the people that witness that in me, um, or in other autistic individuals are so valued. Um, the ones that are maybe a little bit quirky or a little bit more, accepting of others you know those are the folks <laughs> that uh instead of calling someone like me quirky or weird for only having that one taco and i could tell you which taco that is <laughs> i could i liked you right away when i met you i did i liked you even though you were in a really dark place when i met you i liked you right away it's interesting that professionals say that to me <clears throat> but i still don't fit really in my peer group <clears throat> Mm-hmm. But I've had professionals go, oh, there's, you're somewhat refreshing with your openness. been hardest to learn when you, you described that you have to operate in manual meaning you have to do consciously things that most you know neurotypical people do unconsciously but what have been the most difficult or trying things you know in relating with your fellow species that you have to very consciously operate in manual <laughs> and 
remind yourself to do them that, again, most people might not even think about? Ah, uh, there's, there's so many and they're invisible for the most part. I would say the executive functioning issues are an extreme challenge for me in terms of um, scheduling and studying and shopping so that fruits are right at ripe at this the right time and some of those things are very hard and and people can't see them a thing that i think more people could relate to would be interpersonal challenges like making small talk in the line at school when you're picking up with other parents or standing at a party with your in-laws and trying to appear engaged, calm, poised, normal, appropriate subject matter, not too deep, not too depressing. Um, so the interpersonal piece is a, is a huge struggle for me. Um, the sensory piece inhibits my recreation. I know I said I don't, I didn't play, but that doesn't mean I, I know it's part of life and I know I should, and therefore I do, uh, if I can, but the sensory piece inhibits that. Cause I'm worried about what about the wetness? What about the sun beating on me? What about the feeling I get when these cheap sunglasses are too loose? I, so they're just, it touches all parts of my life. You do really well with eye contact. I noticed that you, you know, you look at me and then you look away and you look at me like you have a very normal and neurotypical normal hmm. way. And I've wondered if you've had to learn that because again, hmm. like if someone were watching a video of you and me right now, say with the volume turned off, they would never guess that you're not autistic spectrum because you, you actually, you engage in a, well that way. And I wonder hmm. if you had to learn that or you just, again, pick that up kind of unconsciously from your mentoring friend? I am not sure childhood-wise what that looked like from me because I think I just went with the flow. But as I got older, <laughs> you know, that they say, oh, the... The eye, you know, the eye contact thing, which means looking away, which I'm doing a lot during this because that's, I can think better that way. But I think that's but, normal. I do that too. I think a lot of people um, look away when they think. In fact, I remember Sam Harris saying on a podcast, he said, if if you look at gurus, gurus oh, can always stare at you. They never look away. This is the thing. And there's such power because it, it's actually kind of freaky, yeah. but it gives someone great power. But I think... Many people, when they think, look away, and then they look back. And you know, you and I are doing that throughout this conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that the average person would tell me that I um, am too intense with the eye contact. So I have had to learn to not. And, and so it's awkward and it's artificial for me. Because I will just, if I'm interested, I'll just stare right at a person and just continue. I mean, I'm in it when I'm in it. Uh, so I've had to learn to look away. And and now it feels more comfortable and more natural not to force eye contact because I should. Because mm. we're taught, you are taught 
to force the eye contact, not to the same degree that I'm talking about, but there's a natural flow to it, I think, in the neurotypical population. And there's a social expectation. And I knew that for me, my degree of eye contact was weird. I just didn't know how to make it uh, better or different. Tell me about marriage and about being a parent. And I know those are separate issues, but the reason I lump those together is because for most people, those are the most intimate, attached, most rewarding, but also most difficult relationships that we'll have throughout our lives. And how you're now divorced. I met you as things were really breaking apart in your marriage and you were in a really dark place. And how was that to be married you know, as a woman with autistic spectrum disorder, how has it been to be a parent? How do those overlap? How are those different? Autistic people get lonely. It's very lonely. Were you a sexual so when, being too? I mean, was there a... I think that a was warm- a based on trauma. Okay. I think there was a lot of reaching out for connection, mm-hmm. um, which young males in that age range are not difficult to find. <laughs> terms of connection. Now that connection might not last very long, but, um, so I had, I had dated and I had met people and I typically ended up with these just emotionally unavailable or aloof guys. And so I spent so much time alone. I really did want a connection in my life. Now that doesn't mean that I thought I could sleep in the same bed as them or that I could tolerate them in terms of, you know, moving in and and creating a home together. It just means that I had the desire for companionship and I had the desire for closeness. And so my ex, I found very handsome and, um, he was kind and a people pleaser and really went out of his way to make me feel cared for uh, in in terms of some of the things that he would do, bring home a coffee, which is one of my same foods. There's like a specific kind of coffee. So, you know, he'd bring that home or he changed my oil or uh, in the car or um, rub my back, which I have an issue with touching people. I can touch like three people in my life, but he was one of those people. And he would pay very close attention to depth and pressure and duration. And so he really tried very hard, I think, in the beginning. And it was easy to relax into something that felt good, Um, something that did not feel offensive in a sensory way. Um, it, It felt loving. And I knew early on that I was not going to have kids. Uh, not only because of my upbringing, but because I knew about my differences so early and what the pain that they caused me that I did not want to, I don't know if it's the right word, but imbue another person with that or subject someone to that. And then when I met my ex and things were going quite well, 
think I softened. You know, I didn't really have a dad present when I was growing up. And my mom was emotionally not present and sometimes often physically not present. But my ex really, in terms of suitability for a father, like if you could choose someone to parent small children well, I would have said, this man is very capable. I say said, and he is, he's still, he is still capable. So that softened me up to this idea of having children. And then when we did have children, um, it became very much my special interest in certain ways. So I did as many things as I could write, uh, and in a way that I felt could mitigate the effects of these challenges that I have. So we only did attachment parenting. No one ever had to cry it out. Um, if was that hard for you? I'm imagining again, because noise and too much stimulation. So you have this little baby that you're trying to do attachment parenting and you're holding him or her and screaming and you're having, again, the physical contact. And I would think that could just set off all the alarm bells for you. Uh, it, it did. But the thing is, is a little baby, when they come into the world, they want to be connected with and they want to be close and they want to be fed and they want to be responded to within a reasonable amount of time. They require a safe home base in order to be whole. And so again, on manual mode, as soon as a child starts doing that, I'm right there. And so I sacrificed a considerable amount of time and happiness and, you know, whatever I, I sacrificed in order to be there for the child. If they needed a nap at this particular time, well, that's where we're going to be. They don't want to eat this food. No one's forcing it. If you cry, you'll be responded to and you'll be treated respectfully. I knew going into it that with my particular um, issues that I struggle with, that being a single parent would not be in my best interest, nor that of the children. So emotionally, that's hard to deal with now because there is no, you can't do it all right when they're preteens anymore. that early, very conscious kind of attachment parenting, did that serve as a kind of exposure therapy for you in terms of like, it got easier for you? Like you maybe went from tolerating it barely to actually tolerating it better or even enjoying it? Or was it just as hard, the crying and the contact and all of that? Like, does that make sense? Like, did you sort of become accustomed to it and even improve or did it stress you out just as much from day one as day of the thousand? It depends on the child because I feel as though after the second child, my functioning decreased because the workload increased, but 
there were no additional external supports. And so with the first one, I had the time and the, the youthful energy and the wherewithal and the determination. And I was just going to work on through all of that sleep loss. When the second one came on, I, I went through what I'm realizing now and what no one diagnosed in the past was a severe autistic burnout, uh, loss of communication, loss of skills, uh, a complete loss of functioning. And I was at that time, uh, (laughs) I doubt it now, um, but diagnosed with psychosis, postpartum psychosis, because I literally just couldn't handle anymore. I remember sitting in a room with my eyes absolutely gigantic and wetness coming out of my mouth, almost catatonic, not being able to not even being able to speak to people, not being able to hold the baby, not being able to, I mean, really, my functioning was in the tank. And it's because there is no village. Like there is no village. And so I just kept falling. So that second kid really pushed something over the edge. Oh, yeah. 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 Do you I know you can't compare this to anything because you only have yourself as a as a measuring stick, but do you feel attached and to your children and Oh boy. Oh yes. Yes. Now I'm not, I'm not sure that I have the same, um, ingredients that lead to a certain recipe of love that everyone could recognize as a one size fits all flavor of, of love, but I certainly, um, have love and respect and admiration and awe and, um, yeah, there's, and I, physical contact, like I am very averse to physical contact with just about anyone except again, three people. And then there are two of them. (laughs) And I mentioned my, my scent, my, you know, stimming earlier when they were little babies. I mean, just the way that they smelled was something else. And I think that they would also say that, yes, mom does love us. And we can tell else, you know, we have standard lines and I'll walk into the house and say, do you know something? (laughs) And they'll look back at me and go, you love us. So they're, I have been trying not only in, in manual mode Mm -hmm. and on purpose, but in authentic loving in the way that I do mode to love them and make it known since they were little, because I understand that with the way I am as a person, that connection could be at risk. It sounds like you're overcoming two huge parenting challenges. So one is autism, but the second is you grew up with profound emotional neglect. I mean, so you've broken that neglect cycle and you also have worked really hard to connect with your kids to consciously attach to them. I have. Yeah. Because they deserve no less. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we had them deliberately. It was on purpose. And I don't know that I could live with myself 
if I didn't do my best to try to take care of them emotionally as a priority. Um, and then, I mean, that's, that's probably my priority. All the, the financial stuff comes after that and social connection comes after that. I mean, ultimately in order for them to feel whole and worthy and of belonging and, um, I mean, I really feel like the source of contentment, at least, as a, or happiness, comes from having a foundation of, of love and a foundation of uh, overused but belonging. And I think they know they're loved, and I think they know they belong. existing biggest challenges because again you've learned a lot you've um you know in your manual mode you've learned to mostly pass and function and marry and have children and, and go through the world but what still is really difficult for you all of it right now i'm going through what i think is a, a i want to say a significant burnout, but that's kind of like saying tuna fish. It's redundant. I mean, any burnout I think is significant when it affects your functioning in life. So because of the recent divorce and the sustained stress over the last year and a half, I am not functioning in the way that I should be able to, and certainly not in the way that most people my age and demographic are functioning. Um, you know, I went from being a stay at home mom and kids a hundred percent of the time to having multiple transitions a week and transitions lay out autistic people. So I'll be laid out just because my kids are coming in for the week or because they're going out for the week or, um, so it's, it's challenging to do parenting on and off and uh, employment on and off, or I'm seeing someone or that relationship on and off. I, I have challenges with all of the things, the interpersonal stuff, the sensory stuff, the executive functioning stuff, the depression stuff, the, and it's, it's all here right now. And in right now, it's saturating my life yeah. to the point that it's affecting everything um, negatively. Yeah, my impression of you is this is not very DSM, but a diagnostic statistical manual, but that you are like a battery that can't really hold a charge. Like you're like an old smartphone that you plug it in, and within 10 minutes, the battery's down to red. And you think, wait, I just plugged this in. But I think everything you described, the, um, the divorce and all the challenges on you. And just as, again, even when things are going smoothly for you, moment to moment, day to day life is way harder than it is for neurotypical people. And that, you know, ever since I met you, you've been like battery flashing red and we've, you know, tried mm -hmm. different things to, and we, you know, at times we get you with a little more resilience, but your default, you just drain quickly and, and that's exhausting. 
I've, I've always been like that. Um, I mean, like early on, I remember being in elementary school, even kindergarten and having that feeling, you know, we didn't have smartphones back then and I wouldn't have thought of the battery analogy, but that's now how I do explain people, you know, myself to people as I'll say on a, this sounds very generous to say that I start the day with 68%. That's just, I'm never at 68%. But so I start with, you know, a certain charge, and I don't know what it's going to be. And then it's just depleted so fast. Mm -hmm. But adults have so many responsibilities. Um, I say if I was uh, born into a different day and time, it would be, you know, I think I meant to talk to the people who are different in the tribe, you know, or mm. hunt some berries or brush some cattle or follow the river. Something for simpler. A couple, I mean, modern life is so complex and demands so much attentionally. And you're right. I could see where in a time when you could just focus on one or two things and have much less stimulation, do much better. I would. Yeah. I would for sure. I just want to point out one thing as we're wrapping up, Anne. Um, you know, you've been in a really rough place. And as we've been talking about this episode, you know, I've given you the out a number of times, like, hey, we can do this later. And you were really wanting to do this. And as I sit here with you, I think, yeah, you're you're operating on very low battery. Maybe you're at 12% or 17%, but you're amazing. Like, it's you really want to do this. You felt very committed. You wanted to tell your story. And I think... This speaks to one of the things that I'm just so impressed about you is that you persevere. Like you would have every reason to just stay home today and say, I can't do this. But no, that was not an option. You said, for sure, we're going to do this. Um, and I just want to thank you. Well, thank you. But there are other people out, out there like me. I think that's part of my motivation is that there are other people that are going to discover that they are the way they are for a reason. And there are other people that are going to, I hope, derive a benefit from being able to reframe where they're coming from into something that makes sense and other people have been through. Because one of the hallmarks of this is um, a persistent feeling of loneliness or being alone. And we're not... We might feel lonely and we might feel alone, but there's got to be another person or two or three out there that can relate and might be able to see themselves in a different way if they just happen upon the right content. If you'd like to reach out with comments, questions, or story ideas, you can contact me through my website, craigheacockmd.com. And please do write us a review on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode with anyone who you think might find it meaningful or helpful. We'll be back in two weeks.